Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. Trent off the top as usual. Josie is still away, so Beck Hill once again co-hosting with Robin in studio with one of our Cosmic Shambles bloggers. This week, Dr Pete Etchells, author of the new book Lost in a Good Game. Before we get to that, a reminder about some of our live shows we've got coming up. We are at Space Week uh, at the Old Town Hall in Hemel Hempstead. May 3rd with Signals, a new play we are presenting uh, with Footprint Theatre about SETI and the search for extraterrestrial life or intelligence, if you want to be specific to the acronym. Um, That's followed by a talk by Dallas Campbell. Then on May 4th, it's the Universe of Music show with Steve Pretty and Chris Lintott. We are also going to be at the Cheltenham Science Festival and the Latitude Festival and the Blue Dot Festival all coming up. And we're going to be doing two shows in the famous lecture theatre at the Royal Institution in June as part of their summer series. There'll be a talk by Helen Chersky about her time on a research mission, her research up in the Arctic towards the end of last year. And we're also doing a live episode of the Science Shambles podcast. Helen will be hosting that episode as well while Robin is off in the US on tour with Brian Cox. And there will be Susie Gage on that panel and Lucy Green and some others as well. They're going to be talking about some of the excellent science going on in the background uh, at the moment that doesn't really get the media coverage that perhaps it should. So we're going to bring that to the RI. Cosmicshambles.com slash events. That will give you all the information uh, and ticket links and dates and everything for all those. While you're at Cosmic Shambles as well, check out all of our blogs and videos and everything else, other podcasts we've got going on. Check out our online shop as well and our Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash bookshambles is the direct link for that. As you know, all of the pledges and purchases we get from the shop and Patreon go directly to funding Book Shambles and all of the other stuff we do. None of this uh, happens without your support. So we thank you very much, as always, for that. We hope uh, all the Patreons, supporters we have, continue to enjoy the extended episodes of Book Shambles that we put out each week just for you. Now here is this week's episode with Robin and Beck and Pete. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. A uh, couple of quick things quickly, uh, which is uh, if you go to cosmicshambles.com, you'll find loads of other things uh, which are not really Book Shambles related, but also loads of science things, psychology, various different other podcasts. So go there. You'll also find patreon.com where you can give us some money so we can keep our, our, our endeavour continuing uh, and uh, of, of such incredible uh, importance, international importance. Um, and today, Josie's not here. Um, she's very busy. Um, I, don't even, I don't even really remember Josie now. Well, I look back and I think, uh, who was she? Uh, so instead, we're joined again by Beck Hill. Hello. Uh, and I'm I'm pleased that the, the author we have today is, uh, I, just before we start, started, he went, oh, no, it's been one of those interviews where I forget entirely what I've written. and <laughs> yeah, Which reminds me that. of, well, no, the reason I bring that up is I did an interview with Brian Blessed um, when he had his autobiography out about two and a half years ago. 
And I read the whole book and I'd very carefully annotated it. And so that every question, knowing that also, you know, he's a, he's a human being, he's in his early 80s. So I thought I'd make it as easy as possible. And so I'll just go, oh, uh, Brian, if you just now I know that you worked in Bristol Old Vic with uh, Peter O'Toole and you didn't initially get on, did you? And it didn't matter what I asked him. He would just start, so I go, and um, Peter O'Toole, he'd go, that's right, halfway up the bloody Zambezi, and we've lost the paddle. And you go, well, and this has got nothing to do with... So it literally requires merely an intonation at the end to show it's a question, and then he'll decide what the answer is, whether it's true or false. So... What I'm saying is, I hope that encourages you, Pete Etchells, who is author of Lost in a Good Game, uh, which has just come out and is... Has a great um, story about Peter O'Toole in it. Yeah. It's a fantastic... Yeah. No, this no, one time <laughs> while I was at the Zambezi. <laughs> you did, it, it was while you were playing Doom together, wasn't it? Peter yeah. O'Toole and yeah. you. Yeah. Um, but you... Uh, it's, I'm someone who knows very little about gaming. I am of a generation where I had a thing called Game & Watch, which was about the size of a credit mm-hmm. card, and it did nothing, and it was very, very boring, but it obviously wasn't boring because for that point, when I was a 10-year-old, uh, just trying to bounce a man across four turtles while aiming not to fall in the water because some fish were coming up, for the, that that was just amazing. I mean, the number of times I crossed that bridge was, was both physical and metaphorical in my experience. Um, and then every now and again, I embarrassed my son by uh, attempting to play a video game with him and me going, there's just far too many controls. I don't know what happened to that jump fast. Turn around, I'm stuck under a thing. So... Um, this the, the gaming generate. Where does it start? When do you think that gaming now seems to be something which, as you point out in the book, for instance, there's more people over forty five who uh, play video games than people between the age of I think six and, and fourteen. Mm. It now seems to be a cross culture, and it has reached a stage where um, it's beginning to be taken more seriously. Not you know in the same yeah. way as happened with film and has happened with television and all of these different things. Yeah, so this one time while I was at the Zambezi... Uh, no, yeah. um, no, it's... Yeah, it's a really interesting question to ask. Uh, I think part of it is we don't really have a good handle on what a video game is, right? So I think if you ask everybody, you know, what do you think of video games, everybody will have their own pet um, terms that they use or, you know, at, at talks, I, I always do this, I always ask people in the audience, do you play games? And nobody's hands go up and... Then you start saying things like, well, do you play Football Manager or Candy Crush on your phone? And then everybody's phone, uh, everybody's phone start going up, everybody's yeah. hands start going up. So it's kind of hard to trace a, a, a sort of singular point at which they, they did explode in that sort of way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think from my point of view as a scientist as well, it's, it's equally hard because for as long as video games have been around, there have been worries about them. Um, and moral panics and things like that. It's just that they change every few years or so. But they've kind of been constantly ticking along really since the early 1980s. But, I mean, if you had to kind of put a um, a particular point on when they really did start to explode in popularity, it's probably the early 70s when we started to see home consoles start to mm-hmm. appear. Um, and around about the same time, we saw arcade games start to appear as well. So, you know, it's going on for nearly 40, 50 years now, but it doesn't feel like that. It feels like they're still very much a a new thing. And when do we see the first... Because I was saying, you you mentioned um, Frederick Wortham in Mm. in this book, who... Seduction of the Innocent, isn't that? He he was a guy who wrote the the, the fear of EC comics, of Tales from Mm. the Crypt and others. They were going to... These incredible films of supposed psychologists interviewing children. How do you feel when you read the stories of the madman who cuts off the woman's ass? I feel strange and angry, and I take out my pen knife, and it's all... It's really... And and it was, you know, that that was one of the ways that the children were going to end 
up, you know, destroying mm. the world was through reading, you know, Vault of Horror. Yeah. Um, then we have television and we have things like Doctor Who. There have been a lot of, you know, in the 90s. Movies perpetually have had those. I mean, for the, the last, I suppose, really big scare was Video Nasties. Mm. So... Then of course rap culture as well. That that becomes yeah. another scare for the for the for the kids. And then there's the baton seems to have got passed on to video games. I keep yeah. saying video games. Sorry, this is like being in Canada and calling it ice hockey. I realise I should say gaming. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fifty years old. Yeah, I mean, video games is a bit of a weird term because nobody really uses videos anymore anyway. So I don't really know why I call them that. Um, but yeah, it was D and D in the the early 1980s as well. That was um, turning everybody into Satanists and Harry Potter. Uh, the early 2000s is the same. Um, video games, see, it, it, there's more of a longevity to the the panics around it because I think in the 1980s even, people were worried about um, the effects of like people playing in the arcades all the time you know, and things like marital breakdown and um, you know kids getting square eyes and stuff like that. And then it shifted towards um, violent video games in the 90s, violent video games and aggression, and that was pinned to various things that happened in particularly in the US so school shootings and things like that where um video games came up very prominently in the the media aftermath that the the kids that were involved in those really horrendous acts were were playing violent games before but not just well, that it was Sandy Hook you mentioned was so there was a... Sandy Hook that was one of the recent ones probably the first big one was Columbine in 1999 mm. I think that was um, where Doom was very much involved in that narrative and it wasn't just that they played these games but it was the games were causing them that were driving them to these sorts of mass acts of societal um, violence and then that in turn I think has driven a lot of research into whether these things do have actually have an effect, and that's been an entire mess of liter research literature. Uh, really, people getting quite angry on both sides of the debate, saying yes, they do, no, they don't. Um, yeah, it's... well, I played a lot of Tetris as a kid, and I'm I'm really good at making walls now. <laughs> You're like, like an Edgar Allan Poe story, aren't you? Everywhere I go, I hear a cat behind a wall, and I think she's been here, that's killing right. and leaving the cat behind her magical multicolored wall. Bring it, yeah, bricking up, a, but I always leave like a well, like, a, <laughs> yeah. like a, just one empty slot so I'm waiting for one of that long brick <laughs> I can just yeah so yeah, so if anything it's taught me how to make a wall badly yeah yeah it just fall if you down. make it well it disappears just fall down so. in three dimensions yeah that's right <laughs> Do you know there was a really a really fun study a few years ago that was looking at this kind of whole aggression playing video games question and really whether it was it things like frustration that might drive people to get a bit annoyed um, and they used Tetris. So there were two versions of the game. There was Tetris, and then there's one which you can, I think you can get it for free on, on the internet still called Bastard Tetris. Yeah. <laughs> it's programmed to um, it'll figure out which, which piece you need, yeah. and it will never give you that piece, and it will tell you that you're not getting that piece. So it's really hard, and it's really frustrating. Oh. And you found the same sort of thing. So people who played that version of the game showed ended up more aggression people. in the measures. Yeah, yeah. they literally <laughs> everybody pushing walls. On <laughs> um, yeah, they showed more aggression than the people who didn't. And yeah, that's mm. not it's not a violent game. It's mm. it's a brick building game. Yeah. Well, so. can you break down because you, you you talk about this in one of the chapters of the book, the, the chapter which deals specifically with this idea mm. of will violent games make the children who play it or, or the adults, whatever. Mm. Uh, uh, wish to enact real violence, and you you do you look at some of the research which was yeah. used to basically break down how much the narrative within a game appears to actually affect the mm. the uh, the people playing it. Yeah, I, th I think there's the sort of caveat to all of this is that it's really hard to do research in this area 
people kind of look at video games and they think, oh, it's a bit of a DOS. And when you say you're a video video games researcher, they go, well, yeah, it's not a proper job, is it really? Um, but actually, well, it's not, but actually <laughs> um, it's really hard to develop something that looks like a good, robust, solid experiment that tests something like the question you're trying to answer is, are there some people out there who, if they play a, a certain type of video game, will go out and hurt other people or hurt themselves or, or kill people? That's a really important question to answer. It's really hard to test in the lab because you need some sort of measure of aggression. Right? You can't give people a game to play and then put them in another room, turn the heat up and see how many people come out alive. <laughs> it doesn't get through ethics. So you've got these proxy measures of aggression. I love it when you can actually hear within the tone of that voice that this was taken to the ethics <laughs> committee. <laughs> really tried but they didn't like it um so you've got to use something that is a measure of aggression but isn't that sort of thing right? mm. so there's been loads developed over the years um the one that seems to have been used the most is called the taylor competitive reaction time task so basically what you do is you uh you get people to play a game uh a quote unquote violent or non-violent game and then you go, okay, we're going to play a different game now in a different room. Uh, you're going to be sat in a, in a booth with a computer and there's somebody else somewhere in the university who's going to be in a similar sort of room. And it's a reaction time game. So something will appear on the screen. As soon as it does, press space bar. Um, if you press it first, you win. If the other person presses it first, you lose. And the aggression measure is that whoever wins gets to blast their opponent with a loud noise. And you get to choose how loud the blast is and how long it goes on for. Mm. Uh, and there's your aggression measure. So you're being more aggressive if it's if you're blasting people for louder and longer. Um, the other person doesn't exist. It's all controlled by the computer, obviously. But because you've got those two measures, um, what do you actually pick? Do you pick the mean loudness? Do you pick the mean duration? Do you pick the mean loudness times the mean duration? Um, some studies have just taken only the data from the very first trial in the experiment because that's the only time that you know that the person will possibly win having never lost before you might call that unprovoked aggression reasonably um, other studies take only the data from uh, trials where the the person won having lost the previous trial which you might think of as retaliatory aggression mm -hmm. theoretically all of these things make sense but what you decide to use as your data is is important because obviously if you analyze different the same data in different sorts of ways it might have an effect so there was a study that did just that a few years ago found that if you take one data set and analyze it in all of these different ways that you see in the research literature, you can find whatever you want. You can find that video games do cause aggression uh, or that they don't or that there's there's sort of nothing going on. Um, and that means that the finding isn't in the data mm. itself. It's in the decisions that people make as to what to do with that data. So then the important thing is that what you decide to do and how you decide to do that and how you uh, tell people that that becomes a really important thing to do at the start. So you don't want to get into this situation where if you have a certain belief that games maybe don't cause aggression and you, you run a study and you analyze the data one way and find that uh, um, they, they do, uh, you go, well, that doesn't make sense. Maybe I've done the analysis wrong. I'll do it another way. Mm. Um, not deliberately. And I'm not talking about people kind of deliberately messing around here. It's just, you know, that's how psychologists have been brought up to kind of uh, feel around the data in that sort of way. Um, you might end up doing this inadvertently and analysing it in all the different ways you can until you find the the answer that you think was right, and then you just talk about that one, and that's that's a problem for science, really. Mm. Yeah, and it, there's this sort of weird thing that's been going on with psychology, and maybe not just psychology research, um, but 
really noticeable in psychology research over the years in that you tend to see what we call, and this is the this is a bad way of calling it, but positive findings or significant findings published more often than non-significant findings or negative findings. And maybe that's the way that we talk about these things is probably part of the problem in that, you know, if I, if I run a study, um, a big study to try and figure out whether if you eat sprouts, it causes depression <laughs> and I find that it doesn't have an effect, then that's a lot harder to publish because everybody's like, well, yeah, obviously, mm. uh, it's not interesting to find that this doesn't have an effect on that. It, that's a lot harder to publish than if I do a study that shows that eating sprouts does cause depression. Mm. So the problem then becomes that if if I if you if you imagine kind of alternate realities where um, you have those two outcomes and one's published and one's not in the in the in, in, it, science doesn't happen in isolation obviously so there's always going to be people who are doing maybe similar studies around the world and if everybody's doing studies who um, uh, on on sprouts I don't know why I talk about it. I really don't like sprouts but um, <laughs> um, doing studies on sprouts and depression and finding no effect but one group through statistical chance basically happens to find a positive effect and that's the one that's that gets published mm. then what we've got in the research literature is a single study that shows that sprouts eating sprouts causes depression but the reality of the science uh the sort of science world is that there are, there are hundreds of studies out there that show that sprouts don't cause depression but they're not published so it's probably the case that sprouts don't cause depression but that's not what that's not the view that we get from the research literature. So you mm. need another alibi to say no to sprouts. Yeah, really basically. What, underneath it yeah. All, yeah, what yeah. you're really doing in that long piece, if you're trying to understand why you sprouts, was you are calling to our listeners to do some research, yeah. Yeah. which will give you the alibi required. And that's the thing. If I'm, if I'm doing the research as well, and I really hate sprouts, and I do the analysis, and the data show that sprouts don't cause depression, I might go, well, that's clearly not right. Because yeah. I don't like sprouts and I've got depression. So uh, I'm going to have to do something else. Instead, I'll do a different sort of analysis yeah. and keep doing analysis. If you keep doing that, um, again, not deliberately. I'm not saying, you know, I want to do this because I'm, I'm a fraudster. Be an unconscious bias. But yeah, an yeah. unconscious thing because that's, you know, we're sort of brought, brought up as psychologists to have a feel around this very messy, complex data. There's mm. always different ways to analyze it. I suppose also... eventually you settle on that one that shows you what you think you want to know. Yeah, but I, I suppose also there's probably, as you were talking about, the pressure um, to have something that's that's a bit more exciting. Yeah. So I guess yeah. it's almost like a sort of clickbaity type thing. Like, what will the headline be? No one wants to read the headline. Yeah, it's scientists the novelty find value. sprouts don't cause depression. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. yeah, that's not going to make unless the news. you could twist it and make it. Science finds that sprouts battle depression. Well, that's that's the other thing. You might find yeah. some people might find it the other way, and then you get this debate in the literature about whether they do or do not cause depression and then but you find out that one them. was financed by the national sprout council yeah. and yeah. then the negative one was the national carrot council yeah. and the whole but i mean that's you you mentioned <laughs> about you know some researchers who it seems in quite a blasé way but it might not be blasé sometimes just go well do you know what i'm going to ignore those participants of the experiment because mm. they're not really they're not that useful mm. i mean you know jb it was jb ryan wasn't it the guy who did all the research into esp in the mm. extrasensory perception in the 1930s. Yeah. And, and he found if people were particularly rubbish at having extrasensory perception, <laughs> if they were, that he, he'd count them as being so extreme in their inability to guess wavy lines, triangles or, or squares. Yeah. That he, well, I, I think, let's just, they didn't exist. They weren't yeah. part of this. So suddenly you've got the whole thing skewed. Yeah. Because yeah. those who appeared to have a, you know, go beyond chance, you know, again, mm. when you've got large numbers of group. Yeah. So yeah, I'm fascinated by... Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, As we I mean, learned from Ghostbusters, you know, sometimes they just want to impress girls. Yeah. So. Do you know what? I love that? So, so that bit in Ghostbusters is a really prime example of why psychology is going through a replication crisis. <laughs> really, a really self-serving psychologist completely messing around with the data. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's, you know, there's no rule book for this, right? It's the, there's not somewhere that says that if this happens in your study, you must exclude a, a participant or not. Because... Mm. Psychology is really messy and we're, we're constantly trying to come up with ways, innovative ways in which to interrogate those questions about human behavior. So mm. you've got to kind of make those decisions yourself as to what what's you know, whether something's genuine, genuinely gone wrong in a, uh, in a, in a in an experiment or not. Now, you, you can't I think things are changing. right? You can do this. So you can set up a, a list of ground rules for yourself for a given experiment and publish that. Mm. Or, or make it available online at least so that people can see it. And you do that before you start doing the experiment. And then that's something that you can rely on and say, okay, well, you know, this person, you know, everything's done on psychology students at universities. And you know, I tested this person at nine o'clock in the morning and they came in with a steaming hangover and, you know, they, they weren't pressing the right buttons. They were just mashing the screen with the with the keyboard with their face or something. Mm. So their data's a mess. There are, we've got a full data set out of them, but... There are clear reasons why they might not have been taking part and paying attention to the study. Yeah, and so, now we found out that hangovers give you ESP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but so how you make those decisions? You just need to be consistent with them and, yeah. and be honest about it, and then then you're fine. Mm. So that's um, yeah. I'm kind of. I mean, how exciting rather than difficult do you find to be? Because it seems to me that within you know, so psychology is still. You know, it's it's a young area trying to on human psychology in mm. particular, trying to work out all of the different problems which come from in some ways trying to objectively monitor subjective experience. Yeah, that seems to me. So, do you mm. find that, as you said, it's, it can be very, very difficult? I mean, you actually say you don't really say about video games in this mm. book. You say basically, once you've got human participants, it gets harder and harder to work out an experiment. Yeah. which you feel you can come up with something which might in any way near an objective result. Yeah, people are rubbish, basically. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah, I I struggle with it to the point of near paralysis sometimes, you know, trying to figure out how to... Because with the video game stuff, there's all, all of these problems, and there are lots of people out there that are trying to... And I should say this about everybody, that everybody's trying to do the right thing and find the right answers and, and mm. sort of sitting there, but trying to figure out how you actually do that so the more critical you become about the literature, the more you go, even for your own studies, say, okay, well, I could do this, but then that'll be wrong and that won't work and ah, I can't do that anymore. So you just kind of get stuck sometimes. Mm. Um, I have no idea how to get around that. Would, would two existential of, crisis all of this I'm, I'm interested. I mean, two of the, the most famous 20th century um, experiments are the, the Milgram experiment, which you mentioned mm. in, in, in the book, which now people seem to be arguing against more and more. Mm. There are, yeah, there are questions around, but again, it's the same sort of thing. There's questions around precisely what happened in the studies and um, who was told what and, um, you know, what, what happened with the data and, and how you know, there are alternative ways in which you can interpret the data and, and what people were doing. Um, it's sort of questions around that. I think the um, the Stanford Prison Experiment's a really good example Well, that, that was the one the that I was... Because Milgram yeah. Experiment, I like him. He had a funny beard and he had that nice voice <laughs> that I want that kind of person to have and mm. I like all the other experiments he did about making people give up their seats on you know subway yeah. trains stuff like that so I like him so I'm going to use my cognitive dissonance <laughs> to say that though the Milgram experiment might have had problems mm. 
I like it. Stanford yeah. experiment that I've got a lot more issues with. So shoot that one down because I'm prepared to... Uh, I'm curious as to what your issues are with it, though. What your well, issues? I, do you know what? I find it interesting. Well, some of it's based around ego. Right. Uh, yeah. Of some of those involved, and which has become... I can't, but the other thing is, well, actually what really fascinates me in the experiment, if you don't know the Stanford experiment, it was basically where uh, to find out about... To some extent, I'll probably say it's an unfavorable, but what happens with the dehumanisation of people, if you get a group of people together and you go, you lot are going to be the prisoners and you lot are given the power of being the warders. And what was seen in, in, in the version that I know is basically very, very quickly the uh, those people playing the prisoners mm. were dehumanised. Those people in charge, especially a guy with mirrored shades, became more and more uh, brutal. And it was only uh, when... Um, oh, man, I've forgotten the name now. Uh, the, the guy did the Stanford experiment. Zimbardo. Yeah, when, yeah. when Philip Zimbardo's, uh, I think, girlfriend of the time came in and said, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> this is crazy. And then he suddenly realised it had gone too far. And what fascinates me is things like... One of the arguments I've heard against it is that some of the people playing the warders were saying, well, we were just playing along. We were playing the part that we thought. Mm, But then I still think that is how much of the rest of our existence Mm. in all of our social situations Mm. could we say, but I was only playing the part. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm kind of intrigued on two levels as uh, one of the ways that it's been slightly shot down. I'm still not entirely sure whether if cruelty is merely meted out because you were playing the part, whether that changes... Yeah, mm. well, th- there are other issues with this. Well, Brilliant, bring them up, bring yeah. them up, because I don't want to read the other like book. I, these are the ones that I remember reading about. Yeah. yeah, so there are questions around how it was actually conducted, um, I think, and, and the, the fact that um, uh, Zimbardo put quite a lot of pressure on uh, the guards to perform in a certain way mm. um, for the purposes of, you know, again, maybe what he thought might come out of the study as, as the answer. So um, I don't think the Stanford prison experiment a it's not really an experiment it's mm. it's it's not an experiment in the traditional sense as far sounds as like larping yeah basically <laughs> yeah you know the um, um uh oh i've forgotten what um something active role-playing i've forgotten what action. the l stands live, live action, action. Yeah. live action role-playing that's what it sounds like. It sounds like just a group of people who had a little play around, and now apparently that's what an experiment is. Yeah, I mean, it, it, basically, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not convinced that the Stanford Prison Experiment told us anything useful mm. about anything. Um, I think it's this it's an mass, improv group. Yeah, it's this massive study that gains a lot of traction in psychology, and we teach it to our first years all the time. But I don't really know why. There's mm. more interesting stuff that we can that we found out about the human condition. Um, that we can talk about on more, in more fundamental ways. And there's so many kind of methodological problems with it that I don't know why it's still uh, it's still taught. I don't, I'm not, I'm isn't really, it because really the, isn't that whole thing again, which is when, when we had uh, Lawrence Scott on and we were talking about his uh, Picnic, Comma, Lightning book and about, you know, mm. the, the narrative can trump mm. the uh, the evidence. Yeah, so absolutely. you go, it's a yeah. great story. Hey, these people went yeah. crazy. You know, and, yeah. and that... Mm. Yeah. So, so I mean, interestingly, um, Zimbardo wrote a book um, a few years ago called "Man Disconnected," which is around about um, the why uh, why we're seeing problems with um, young adult men, and and it talks about video games in that. So his argument in that book was that um, sort of it was bizarre arguments in it. So I think one of the arguments was that um, primarily what what people are doing when they go to university so so women go to university to try and find a husband and the problem is that men are all playing video games at university now so they're being more childish and they're not they're not creating those yeah it's it's it was a weird argument and there wasn't anything in terms of an evidence base for mm. it so but it makes a good narrative you know yeah. and, and you know if you can 
get past some of the casual misogyny in it as well. Like people, it might kind of tie into people's beliefs about the negative effects of video games, say, and what what they perceive from their personal experiences. Because when you watch somebody play a video game, if you don't know what they, if you've not if you've not played them before, you don't really know what they're like. It's quite a jarring experience to watch somebody do that and look like they're absorbed into the screen. Mm. Um, so when somebody comes along and says, "Here's some negative effects um, that have a long term impact on." young men and that's kind of why it's leading to sort of problems in those groups then then you believe that without thinking about it too much more yeah i don't i don't know if this will line up but what i'm interested in was there anything that you found during your research that made you go ah that you're uh willing to give us for free as a taster of the book Ooh. oh <laughs> or something mean, that so, didn't make the cut oh yeah what there, there was yeah there's there's lots of things that didn't make the cut, and I can't remember them anymore. I thought during your answer I'll pour some water. Quite. Let's do some foley. Um, so one of the things really was around, and I know you're probably not going to like this, but the, the history of video games stuff, because Robin didn't like my chapter on the No, it's not that I didn't games. like. Right, let's make it clear. <laughs> the thing I was, hate it. Uh, right. I love the psychology of the book, but I find... There's, it's a weird thing that things that I, I don't know why I just didn't. It, uh, it, it's it's very interesting seeing the slow process. Well, a quite fast process, really, mm. isn't it? Of it going from various different versions of Pong to mm. suddenly, you know, every time that my son gets in a new game and I look at it and I find the dimensions of it. And like when you're in the cinema and you watch the adverts mm. and you don't know until the end when it says Tour of Duty 5 mm. that you've been watching what's going to be a, 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 a game, not mm. a film. Yeah. Yeah, I was watching Archie play Fortnite um, before we got Robin's son. I should make clear, just some child yeah. on the street, and um, and the whole time all I could think was, one day, when Archie's our age, he's going to talk to other people about Fortnite in the same way that my friends and I talk about GoldenEye on the Nintendo sixty four, and and then kids who are kids who are his age now will look at him and go. Ugh. Yeah. I what mean, do you know? <laughs> or, or the way um, I used to talk about noughts and crosses. Yeah. You know, much the same. Yeah. That little uh, stick and a yeah. stick and a wheel yeah. <laughs> chasing down the street. Yeah. I think, sorry. Yeah. The bit that surprised you. Yeah. Oh uh, well, no. Well, it was just that, that there's there's not a clear starting point for video games. That a they go back a lot further than I thought they did particularly like online playable games. So when you think of like multiplayer online games like World of Warcraft and stuff mm. like that, you can sort of think about early what really really early ones in like the mid 90s. But they went back as like early as the 1980s and there's these these games called MUDs, multi-user dungeons that were mainly based in in universities, Essex University in particular, but, but people were playing online games with each other um 40 years ago. Mm. And it it that sort of blew my mind a little bit. Um and people still play, you can still play them now. There are sort of all different versions of them. They're basically text-based games. They're all a bit like yeah. Zork um, or the, oh, the yeah, Hitchhiker's Zork. Guide game, which which I was always terrible at. You know, it was <laughs> you, know you start the game and you you walk north and then die. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Did you know Douglas Adams brought out a game called Bureaucracy? No. <laughs> where the whole it was all based around the um, it was a text adventure one, and it was uh, um, the aim of it is that you have to go and change your address. So that the council or someone sends your your mail, or so maybe it was the post office, so it sends the mail to your new address. But you couldn't change your address unless you had proof of your address <laughs> in the form of a letter. 
And it's just this whole big, but it, like obviously it then branches out into loads of other stuff, but essentially it was an unwinnable game um, <laughs> that he just completely did off the bat of, I think he moved house and then couldn't get his credit nice. card address changed or something. But yeah, the whole text-based adventure game just there's, on the bureaucracy. Yeah. There's loads of interesting <laughs> games like that. There's a game that came out a few years ago for the iPad called Papers, Please. Oh. which oh, is yeah. you play the role of a, a security guard at um, mm. the border of a fictional um, Soviet bloc country. Um, and you're tasked with either allowing or not allowing people through the border. So you've got to check their passport and you've got to check their credentials and things and stamp them. So you've got to try and get as many people through as you can, but they've got to be the right people. And the rules change on a day-by-day basis. So sometimes you know they, they have coalitions with countries nearby and they're allowed in and then the next day they're at war, so you can't allow them in anymore. Mm-hmm. But then you get people coming in and saying, please, I've been exiled here from, for 40 years and I need to go and see my dying father. Can you let me in? But they've not got the right um, credentials. So do you decide to let them in or not? Well, if you do, then you'll get penalised and you've got a family to support because you're in government housing. And if you get penalised, you won't get enough money. So then you've got to choose whether you want to pay for heating or rent or food and things like that. Oh. So it's a really kind of interesting uh, political game that's very hard. There's all sorts of different endings because mm. uh, you get approached by a, um, a counterinsurgency group as well to see whether you take part in them. But do you get found out or not? So there's lots of different endings, but mm. it's really hard to not lose, basically. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because for me, as someone who is is a very casual observer uh, of 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 this whole kind of gaming industry, yeah, I presume that it's nearly all shoot 'em ups, and that you know, if I go to the arcades and you know, put the fifty p's in for my son to kill more 50. aliens mm. and all of those things, but actually, is there quite a uh, uh, is it is, is there a reasonably large, vibrant kind of non uh, extreme violence and and and, and aggression? Yeah. Huge. Yeah, yeah, absolutely yeah. huge. Yeah. Um, so the indie development scene is, mm. is massive at the minute and there are some really um, quite profound games coming out as well. I think as people find it easier to talk about and open up about mental health issues in particular, what we're starting to see is is lots of games starting to be developed where people who've got that experience build it into the game in some way, shape mm. or form. That's been That's been happening for a long time, but... So I, I personally find that a lot of those games kind of take on the narrative of a, um, uh, an interactive book almost. Um, yeah. And they maybe don't, for me certainly, they maybe don't work as well. But increasingly we're starting to see higher quality. In the last chapter is called Last Day of June, um, which I, I, I mean, it broke me completely when I finished playing that game. It was such a sad story. I'm not going to spoil it because... Mm. Um, if people want to play it, they definitely should. But the general idea is that you, you live in this really idyllic, watercolor-esque um, village. Uh, the name of your character is Carl, um, and he goes out um, to the to the waterfront with his wife June one day. And as they're driving back, they they get in a car crash and she dies, and he's left in a wheelchair. And the game is sort of going through Carl's memories of that day taking over different people in the village to try and change events to stop the car crash from happening. It sounds quite gruesome in a way, but it's really, really tastefully done. Nobody speaks in, in, in the game. They just kind of make weird, weird noises. Mm. So everything's told through the imagery and the environment and things like that. And, you know, you sort of, you, you try and... So, for example, it might be the case that one... Um, one time there's a little kid who's got a, a kite, I think, and he runs out into the road and she swerves to avoid him and that causes the crash. Mm. So you take over the kid and get him to do something else that day 
so he's not in the road, but then something else causes the crash instead. So you're trying to tweak, and it becomes this real complex um, uh, narrative around grief and loss, and you know that idea that we always go through when we lose somebody close to us. Of you know, if if that had been different, or if I'd had said that instead, maybe things would have been different. But you you can't you can't change what happened really fundamentally. Mm. So it's it's a beautiful game, but very. Uh, melancholy in many ways. Yeah. It sounds like, is it Daniel Klaus' uh, comic book, Patience, mm. I think? Is, yeah. Is a, um, I'm always, fa- yeah, the car crash thing always fascinates me anyway because of uh, personal experience and that thing where inside number nine's episode, The 12 Days of Christine, yes. is one that uh, I don't think I'm going to be able to play that game. Mm. Uh, but uh, I mean, yeah. before we finish, and, yeah. uh, I apologise by the way, if it is slightly short, we, we, we start a little bit later on, on this due to technical issues. But I've, I did want to briefly talk about the starting point of this book, which is your own personal experience where yeah. video games, you saw a way that they changed their function for you when you mm. were not even a young man, when you were still a very early teens. Um, your father was diagnosed with motor neuron uh, disease and you you talk about, as you were dealing with that news mm. and eventually also his death, how your experience of video... Can you tell us a little bit more about how you saw that relationship change? Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that I didn't really fully get to grips with or understand until I was writing this, to be honest. So it was not the easiest process in the world to kind of go back and reinterrogate that time. Um, but to look at how and why I used games um, at the time and, and what I tried to get out of them, um, it, it kind of it shows you the sorts of impacts that these things can have over you over a really long term without you even realising it. Um, f- for me, games at that time were I kind of I'm loath to use the the term escape in a sense I do talk about escapism in the book but I'm really conscious about that because I know that for me it worked and it did a, it did something useful I am I'm totally sympathetic and totally understand that for some people that that can become a bad thing and can become mm-hmm. maybe harmful um so I'm not saying that you know everybody should play them and to, to lose yourself after something bad happens because that's a good thing. It, it really depends on you and your situation. But for me, it it sort of allowed my brain just to crunch through the data, I guess, mm. that this was something that just didn't make any sense. And to try and kind of come to terms with it, I needed I needed time and I needed to think about it but also not think about it. And games were a way of giving me something to focus on for a little bit that meant that I didn't have to think about it. Uh, so just have a bit of a break from that. Mm. I imagine um, also it's a case of putting control in your hands again. Yeah. yeah. I don't mean just literally, like, a yeah. just, you know, that you... Yeah, and I think it's something that I talk about in the first chapter in that mm. um, I did, when I was thinking about this really early on for the book, I did wonder and worry about this idea of, you know, Let's just park the science for a side and assume that you know games do if they do have an effect on us. One thing that's really common in games is you have lots of lives, and you know if you if you die or get something wrong, then it's fine because you can start again. And it sort of got me thinking about this idea of you know is that a bad thing? Because does it impact on on how we view life and how we view death? And I thought well that's probably a bit silly really, but it it doesn't because death in video games serves a completely different purpose to what mm. it does in life obviously um but it's it allows us to try things out and 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 explore 
different options and different spaces. And if you're using the, the right sort of game, you can look at things like doing different things and maybe the emotional consequences of doing different things and how you feel about those and explore those sorts of themes and think you know think about you know what's going on in your life at the um at the same sort of time in this really kind of nice contained way and it does feel as though it gives you a little bit of control over something when other things just feel like they're completely out of reach mm. See, that's because you, you have two sides. When you say that sometimes, I suddenly think about Harlan Ellison's I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, mm. Mm. where the surviving, you know, they, they seem to be trapped within a malevolent computer. Or whether yeah. there's a benevolent version where eventually we are able to ana- analyse our brains enough that what will be left is a small, you know, some form of whatever the contemporary chip will be in, yeah. in, in 2000. <laughs> and our relatives will, will take what is left of us and decide if we've been kind, they'll place us in a, in a beautiful world. <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever sim city exists then. And if they feel they want to get their revenge, they'll place us in the middle of, you know, some particular... Uh, Maybe we're tort. already there now. Yeah. Oh, let's not go on a simulation theory. <laughs> oh, bloody Elon Musk. Um, oh, God, that is that's one of my favourite. Because it doesn't mean anything, doesn't it? That's what, yeah. that's what I love. But yeah, yeah. You, you might be right. That, that's uh, it's all gone a bit Matrix. Yeah, imagine that. Yeah, imagine if we're in here and no one's playing us, and we're only we're a brief moment of background as someone runs past. Yeah. There, well, every now and again, we suddenly get this kind of glitch in our head where we think we've seen someone with a machine gun or some kind of laser equipment. Mm. Yeah. But then they're gone again. We're non, non-player characters. Yeah. We're the extras to the extras. We're the NPCs. The... Yep. As long as the console kept, is, is kept plugged in, we should be fine. Fingers crossed. <laughs> the um, uh, so thank you very much. Uh, um, Pete Pete Etchell's book is out now. Uh, Lost in a good game, and it's great, and it's fascinating, and not merely uh, about gaming because I think it does deal a lot with also the the psychology of what it is to, to, to be human and that as art changes I mean you have quite a few quotes from Naomi Alderman who yeah. I, I, I sometimes feel elevates uh, the, <laughs> the art and existential uh, lessons that can be learned from uh, computer games to, to a level which I don't comprehend but I still read <laughs> books in paper form so what the fuck do I know um, uh, Beck Hill will be uh, up at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival going to see her show and then probably down well probably talk around doing lots of different things and the best way of being in contact with you or finding out about your stuff is uh, uh any social media just beck hill comedian go there and uh as i said uh pete's work and i, and I imagine as well what's what's great about a book like this is is when the uh the next edition comes out you'll have another like 100 pages because <laughs> yeah. you're still at the forefront aren't you of, the, of, of this research it's yeah great. it's changing mm. all the time so it's already out of date i think frustratingly <laughs> But not quite out of date, so still. But go people and buy should it. still buy it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What we we'll do yeah. is we'll cut that bit because that, that's a very bad sell right at the end. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, I don't know what's out of date. You know, we so nearly got f- all the way through it without, yeah. Yeah. without you so. going. Oh, it turns out actually most of it, it's all changed. Everything's changed. I, I wouldn't so, see it as merely some strange anachronistic volume that you found at the bottom of a skip. No, it's fantastic. Lost in a good Thank game. You. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, go to patreon.com. Go to cosmicshambles.com. And uh, thanks very much to Trent Burton, our producer couldn't be here today because uh, in the most metropolitan medially accident uh, he was in the uh, members uh, restaurant of uh, London Art Gallery where he was poisoned by salmon. Yep, we are the metropolitan media elite. Bye-bye. He didn't eat it, it's just an evil salmon. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's true, I did spend most of last week uh, enjoying all of the activities one might associate with a suspected food poisoning. 
Thank you to everyone who sent me nice uh, get well messages on Twitter, actually, as I spent most of last week complaining about being ill rather than complaining uh, about Brexit for a change. Thanks as well to all our Patreon supporters, all our listeners. Check out CosmicShambles.com for all the other events and things we've got coming up. We will be back next week with another new episode of Book Shambles. Until then, have yourself a great week. Bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. (laughs) 